Good morning. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Sunday morning session of this alumni weekend. Sadly, the sun is not shining this morning, as it was all day yesterday, but I think the sunshine and the excitement is going to be inside today. And we have a very, very interesting morning of presentations. And of course, an alumni weekend, returning to Oxford, returning to your college, is all about, is, has a component where nostalgia and remembrances of your time in Oxford is a part of it. But today we will see the other side of Oxford, which is a very modern, a very dynamic university with its eyes firmly focused on the future. And this morning's session is very much at the heart of that. The title, as you know, is Revolutionising 21st Century Healthcare Through Technology, an area of absolute importance to all of us. In the academic world, it's a fascinating area because it crosses many disciplines. It's an area where medicine overlaps with science and technology, overlapping with engineering, with health policy, and with ethical questions. And we're going to be touching on all of those aspects of the revolution that is occurring in the 21st century in healthcare, in our understanding of human disease, and our treatment of human disease. There are fascinating medical, scientific, and engineering questions, but as we will hear, those raise all manner of ethical and policy questions for the world. We have three of Oxford's stars in this area presenting this morning, and I'm going to introduce each one separately, just very, very briefly. They will give a 10-minute presentation on the, the key developments in their area that they see. And then at the end of 40 to, to, uh, 30 to 40 minutes, we will then open for a discussion with the entire audience. And so we're looking forward to a fascinating session. Our three speakers today will be, each one will be touching upon core areas of relevance to healthcare in the 21st century. The first, Professor Lionel Tarasenko, will be emphasizing monitoring of disease. The second, Professor Konstantin Kousios, will be concentrating on the therapeutic treatment of disease. And then the third speaker, Professor Alison Noble, will be focusing upon imaging and diagnosis of disease, so three core pillars of modern healthcare development. So let's begin with Professor Lionel Tarasenko. Lionel is a leader in biomedical engineering in Oxford. He is the chair of electrical engineering and the director of the Institute for Biomedical Engineering. He's a fellow of St. John's. He is Oxford through and through, having gained his uh, undergraduate degree here and his DPhil. And most importantly, in this leadership role, he's the theme leader for a joint National Health Service and University of Oxford Biomedical Research Centre, with, in Lionel's case, particular emphasis on, on this 
question of what engineering can bring to healthcare. So it's a pleasure to welcome Lionel to the podium. Thank you very much, Vice-Chancellor. Um, Oxford through and through, but I did have two spells in industry um, in between. Um, and I'm delighted to be here and to see so many of you here this morning. All three of us are from the Institute of Biomedical Engineering, so all three of us are engineers, but we're embedded on the medical campus in Headington, and we spend more time with clinicians probably than we do with engineers. So we're happy to take questions both on the engineering technology and on the medical side of things, and very much hope uh, uh, that it will be an interesting and energizing debate. So we look forward to that. So this slide is what uh, keeps the Secretary of State of Health, whoever he or she may be, um, awake at night. And I'm sure you're all aware of this, is the percentage of GDP uh, that goes towards healthcare. So this slide is from a McKinsey report, and uh, it looks at the last 50 years, roughly from 1960 to 2010. And healthcare spend, as I'm sure you're aware, has outpaced the growth of GDP for about 2% a year in most OECD country. The UK is just above the OECD average. Of course, the US is well out in front. So is this sustainable? Well, the answer, of course, it isn't. Now, why is this? And 80% of the growth in the last 50 years is due to chronic disease and the management of chronic diseases. So these are lifelong illnesses, if you will, um, for which there are no treatments, um, no cure, um, and what you have to do is manage. Now, if you self-manage the condition, sometimes called the long-term condition properly, you will be as healthy as the next person. However, many people do not, and so uh, with one of these problems with diabetes, high blood pressure, hypertension, asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is really smoker's disease. I don't know if you saw the piece in the Times by Matthew Paris yesterday, who shadowed two GPs uh, for a day, and he said, most of the time that the GP was spending was dealing with the problem of smoking. Now, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, is actually 60 diseases, but most of it is due to smoking in terms of prevalence. Um, it is a huge drain on the National Health Service. And even if everybody stopped today smoking, the problem would still be around for 30 years. So we are talking about 21st century problems, although there has been some progress in smoking cessation programs. Uh, COPD is going to be with us for at least half a century. Chronic heart failure, um, arthritis, there are other conditions there that I've not listed. But that's 80% of the growth in healthcare spend is due to the management of these conditions in, in the developed world. And I can give you some figures here, uh, and the figures are absolutely staggering. 130 million people in the US with one or more chronic disease, 1.4 trillion a year on chronic disease management. In the UK, just upwards of 60 million people, 17.5 million people have a chronic disease, one or more chronic diseases. You can see the figure, more than half GP appointments, 65%, two-thirds of outpatient appointments in hospital. And I put, um, it was in red on my laptop, but uh, the last figure I want you to note here is um, the 72% of inpatient bed days, because that's really the expensive part of the national health, is the time you spend in the hospital. So diabetes on its own, nearly 10 billion per year. Um, and if we look at worldwide, um, there were 171 million people with diabetes at the beginning of the century. That 
will be uh, 366 in 2030. Um, and nearly 300 million of those will actually come from the developing world. So this has very much a global dimension. Asthma, here are the statistics as well, pretty much the same. This is just to, to illustrate the scale of the problem. Now, we know what to do, um, and that is to get people to learn how to self-manage. The evidence is there. So medicine is three words always, evidence-based medicine. It doesn't, use as, doesn't exist as a single word. Evidence-based medicine says we know how to make sure these people have a healthy life, it's self-management. But what we have to do is to go from pilot studies to large numbers of people. And this is where technology comes in. So one of the answers possibly, and this is what we've been working on, is one of these. Um, the cell phone, the mobile phone, the smartphone in my case, and indeed Jeremy Hunt's predecessor, um, Andrew Lansley, I haven't got a picture with Jeremy Hunt using one of these healthcare apps yet, or looking at a, a patient using a healthcare app, but this is Andrew Lansley using, uh, watching a patient use a healthcare app, and by last November, one million people had downloaded onto their phone the NHS Direct app that allows you uh, to try and find out what you should be doing if you've got a flu, a bad cough, abdominal pain, uh, back pain, etc. And if it gets too serious, then you are uh, going to get a, a call back from an NHS Direct advisor. So there's some evidence that this is beginning to work. Counter evidence, however, is that if you go to the iTunes store, you have more than 5,000 medical apps or healthcare apps, but the evidence is that one month after downloading one of these apps on their phones, only 1% of people, just one month, are still using it. Now, why would that be? And this is something we can discuss. The data doesn't go anywhere. It's never reviewed by a healthcare professional, and there are few, if any, in our system, um, national health system, any incentives for, for self-management. So this could be a point for discussion. Why don't people self-manage better when there's a lot of technology and support available to help them do so? Um, but where the real gain is probably going to be is in keeping people some way down the chronic disease spectrum who are affected by it, maybe housebound and so on, and uh, trying to keep them out of hospital. Because that's where the cost to the health service is. It's the days spent in hospital. And McKinsey produced one of these reports where they think that at least 15% of the cost could be saved through remote monitoring. What are the 21st century technologies for remote monitoring? Well, I shall give you three examples of what we're doing in Oxford. Um, the first one is we're working with a Californian company that is putting a silicon chip on the pills that people have to take. Because one of the worst problems for uh, bad blood pressure management um, is the people don't take their pills. And one way to make sure they do is to track whether they actually take their pills. Now you might think, silicon chip on inside a pill, and by the way, Novartis are doing this, AstraZeneca are doing this, it will be in your pharmacy within three to five years, um, is do you really want to swallow silicon with um, uh, my pills every day? And I won't tell you the answer now, I'll leave that for the debate. Somebody may ask the question, why should I uh, swallow some silicon every time I take a pill? Um, and if you couple the taking of that pill with a patch which is worn either under the heart in the front or on the back, as you can see here, then uh, you can, through the fact that the pill runs on an electric charge generated by the stomach acid, record the passage of the, of the pill through the stomach, as well as measure a number of vital signs, including <coughs> excuse me, heart rate, breathing rate, and 
the activity of the patient. And when there are abnormal patterns, this information can then be sent to a caregiver. So we're working, this technology has been uh, developed in Silicon Valley, not surprisingly in the US, and I'll be there next month talking to the company Proteus Digital Health, uh, with, with which we have a, a partnership. Then, this is something that we're developing in my lab. Um, could be any of you here using your laptop at home. It will have a webcam. You may Skype your children, you may Skype your grandchildren. Whilst you're doing that, we can monitor your heart rate, your breathing rate, and your oxygen levels. Um, and because medicine is evidence-based, we have done the validation study here in the Oxford Kidney uh, Unit here in Oxford, up on the Megdub campus. Why the kidney unit? Simply because people, when they're being dialyzed, their physiology goes through all sorts of changes. Their heart rate changes, they become tachycardic when their blood pressure drops, high heart rate. Um, their oxygen levels drop, their breathing changes as well, especially if they suffer from sleep apnea and so on. So lots of changes which we can monitor. So we double monitor these patients, you can see here, as well as a webcam here watching them. And I'm not going to go through there, through this, but this is the evidence that we can track the heart rate changes over a period of 20 minutes. The breathing rate, this patient suffers from apnea, sleep apnea, so the breathing rate goes from about 5 to 30 within a 20-minute period, and with the concomitant changes in oxygen levels. And this has been a partnership with a research-funded EPSRC and the Wellcome Trust, working with the university hospitals, as the Vice-Chancellor said, and within the university. And the reason why I mention this, we brought all of these together, and this is, the Vice-Chancellor probably doesn't know this yet, this is the latest university spin-out, formed on Thursday, so two days, uh, three days ago, press release will be out on Tuesday. So this technology and exploiting it is going to be, uh, is going to be uh, put into a university spin-out called OxyHealth. You were the first to, to hear it. Um, finally, the last technology for people who are the sickest patients, um, monitoring blood pressure of people with heart failure um, or chronic hypertension by implanting a sensor in the pulmonary artery. Now, this is not any more invasive than having a pacemaker or a loop recorder, uh, which is often implanted with people who have atrial fibrillation or ectopic beats. So this is no more invasive. It doesn't require any battery with it. It uses surface acoustic waves. It is probed externally by a reader, which is really, again, in the form of a kind of a mobile phone, and we can measure the blood pressure beat by beat. This is a joint pro uh, project with Imperial College, and uh, this will be in clinical trials within a couple of years. The surgeon leading the work, by the way, is Sir Magdi Yacoub, um, and so this is what we think would happen for the sickest of patients um, who need something implanted that doesn't affect their life at all. So that's a quick uh, tour of the kinds of things we can do in the 21st Street. I want to leave you with one final thought, which we may also discuss, which is the global dimension of this. Um, your mobile phone and my mobile phone is actually a very powerful computing platform. This mobile phone has got more power than my laptop or desktop had um, five years ago. Um, and the thing which is extraordinary, and most of you, I'm sure, have discovered this through your travels, is the prevalence of mobile phones in the whole world. Four billion mobile phones, most of which are owned by people who earn less than $10 a day and who never see a healthcare professional at all through the whole of their lives. That care is delivered to them by their families. So if you're in India, in rural India, it's a member of your family who cares for you. It's not a doctor, it's not a nurse. And what this will mean is that we will bring healthcare to these people through using a mobile phone, and we are doing projects in partnership with um, 
uh, clinicians and engineers in South Africa, India and China, where we use the power of the mobile phone and we turn it here with an egg cup into a simple stethoscope. This is the M stethoscope, which is being trialled at the moment to screen children for rheumatic heart disease in South Africa. And as I say, we have projects in those three countries already to give a global dimension. So we're not just looking at what could be done in the NHS, we're looking globally and we believe that this will have a huge impact on the management of chronic disease in the next 30 to 40 years. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, if we may, we're going to move from speaker to speaker, but there will be lots of time at the end for questions. So please keep in your head the questions. There were many from Lionel's talk, and we'll then bring them all together and have all three speakers touching upon them. It's a great pleasure to now introduce our next speaker, who is Professor Konstantin Kousios. Constantine is the Professor of Biomedical Engineering and Head of the Biomedical Ultrasonics and Biotherapy Laboratory here in Oxford. He's a Fellow of Magdalen. Uh, all of his education was done at Cambridge, but we embrace him anyway. Uh, and uh, let me say I had the great pleasure and privilege of presiding just a few months ago at the inaugural lecture that Constantine gave on his appointment to the first statutory professorship in biomedical engineering, and that was just this past January. So it's a pleasure to uh, welcome uh, Constantine, and he will be speaking, as I said earlier, about therapy, particularly applied to cancer. Constantine. Thank you, Vice-Chancellor. Um, thank you for the opportunity to discuss the next step in therapy, and I shall be focusing because of time on cancer therapy in particular for the 21st century. What were our expectations for cancer therapy in the 21st century coming out of the 20th century? Well, I would claim science fiction writers had a rather big role to play, and most of you will, of course, be too young to remember this, but the Starship Enterprise in Star Trek, I think, provided that vision very well. I would like to take you to Sick Bay for a brief moment, where a particular member of the crew is being sat on this bed, and then the scanner goes over them once to diagnose, twice to treat, and off they go. Now, I don't know about you, but I would definitely like one of those. And one of the things which I will try and um, state today is how far are we really going or could we really go into achieving this dream? Cancer is probably one of the costliest diseases we have in the Western world, and there are two main approaches to its treatment today. One is surgery, and one is uh, drug delivery and chemotherapy. Neither of those is hugely successful. Surgery is only feasible in 10 to 25% of cases, and chemotherapy, particularly for abdominal cancer, only has a 20 to 50% response, depending, depending on the metric used, and a median 12-month survival. 
So even though this is the best we have, we have a very long way to go. And so if we look at surgery first, what can we do to actually make surgery cheaper, faster, and more importantly, more effective? Well, it may surprise you that part of the solution actually comes from sound waves. Ultrasound, which has traditionally been used as a diagnostic modality, was very recently developed as a therapeutic tool. The idea is you take a, 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 a large ultrasound transducer, a loudspeaker if you wish, you place it outside the body, and by pure serendipity of the physical properties of ultrasound, you can focus it up to 20 or 30 centimeters deep within the body. And that creates a region about the size of a grain of rice, about 12 by 3 millimeters, where the ultrasound deposits enough heat in order to completely kill cancer cells. And it kills cancer cells in such a manner that the demarcation between dead cells and live cells is only about three cells wide. Now, science fiction, you may think, not quite. The first clinical device, which actually came out of China, was C-marked in a clinical trial here in Oxford in 2004-2005. And you can actually see the second such clinical device for high-intensity focused ultrasound in this picture here. And what I'm showing you here is a, 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 an MRI image of a patient who came in in the morning with a large liver tumor. And this was them at 2.30 in the afternoon, leaving the hospital to go home without surgery, without anesthesia, and with 99.9% .9 of this tumor dead. This is an example of what happened to this tumor after this patient underwent surgery and the tumor was excised and indeed no viable cancer tissue was actually observed after the tumor was taken out. So we have a new technology here which has the potential subject to improvements of speed, of accuracy, of treatment monitoring to replace invasive surgery as we know it. But unfortunately the vast majority of patients aren't, don't present themselves with a single tumor or two discrete tumors in the liver. Because of the subject that will be breached by the next speaker, diagnosis isn't always as successful as we would like, and we quite often see patients with multifocal disease, with multiple lesions. And in this situation, when many, many tumors exist within a single organ, surgical intervention becomes impossible. So the only approach is to go with something that is going to look for the disease wherever it is within the body and attempt to eradicate it. And that is drug delivery and chemotherapy. Now, it is the best we have, and the French are rarely right, but this particular Frenchman actually captured it beautifully about 200 years ago. He said, we know very little about drugs, we know very little about patients. And this is really the limitation of chemotherapy. In the last 40 to 50 years, we have been learning that tumors are near impossible targets for a number of reasons. The first reason is that tumor vasculature is very irregular. There is a lot of vasculature on the outside of a tumor and practically none at its core. If tumors will only allow certain particle sizes to pass between 100 and 600 nanometers. Some cancer cells lie very, very far away from the nearest blood vessel, 200 microns, and 200 microns is godzillions of miles in biological terms. Not all tumors are visible on diagnostic images. We can only treat what we can see, unless we find a way to treat what we can't see. 
And most importantly, when a drug is delivered and doesn't work, is it because the drug isn't good enough? Or is it because the drug never got there in the first place? That is one of the questions that is haunting clinicians. Well, to go back to one of my own ancestors, extreme remedies are very appropriate for extreme diseases. And there is a fantastic magic bullet that has been developed and invented in Oxford, and it's a virus. And it's a virus that is actually specifically designed to kill cancer cells. It's known as oncolytic virotherapy. And oncolytic virotherapy is actually something that only infects and replicates within cancer cells. If it happens to infect a healthy cell, it sits there and is unable to go further unless there is another cancer cell somewhere nearby. And the fantastic thing about oncolytic adenoviruses is that A, they only target cancer cells, and B, they self-amplify. So you don't need to deliver all of the drug, you just need to deliver enough of the drug, a bit like seeding alone, and actually watch it multiply and take coverage and ownership of the tumor as time progresses. Now, a second major approach that combines engineering with virotherapy is this idea of actually not delivering the drug as a free drug, but actually encapsulating it within something. So the idea is you encapsulate the drug, you deliver it through a syringe, then the drug accumulates within the tumor, and you use something external, like a light source, like ultrasound, like radiation, to actually activate this drug only at the desired time point and at the desired location. And that mechanism can not only help release the drug, it can also help diffuse the drug, carry the drug throughout the tumor. So we have a combination here of not only biological, but also physical processes to drug delivery, going hand in hand, medicine and engineering, to actually potentially achieve improved therapy. Now, what is the value of this approach? Well, one of the major problems in delivering any drug, not just viruses, is you can deliver them beautifully next to a blood vessel, which is this region here, and all the drug will actually be adjacent to the blood vessel. These blue things are cancer cells. There is no drug away from the blood vessel. Here, same thing. There is a vessel here. There is your drug. There is no drug away from the blood vessel. Take this magic drug, add ultrasound. Here is the blood vessel. The drug particle has now traveled 350 microns away from that blood vessel. It is crossing those godzillion of biological miles to actually reach the farthest um, cancer cell. Same here, blood vessel, drug particles far away. So combining engineering with drug delivery can not only help increase the targeting, it can also help increase the delivery of the drug to capture the entire tumor volume. And what is the effect on therapy? Well, this is what the drug does in a particular experimental model here in blue. Your median survival is about 25 days. Your maximum survival is about 42 days. Take the exact same drug, the exact same dose, add ultrasound for 120 seconds at the beginning. This is not a lengthy process. You double the median survival and the maximum survival stretches to 80 days. So the potential for combining these approaches to do more of the drugs we have, but more importantly, to do more with 21st century drugs, such as viruses, is absolutely flabbergasting. And the final challenge is, can we tell where the drug is being successfully delivered? Well, here you have an ultrasound image of a tumor. 
Here is a technology which we have developed in Oxford to, to, to identify where the drug is being released. And here is actually a map of where the drug has actually been released. If we superimpose the two, ultrasound image, the monitoring method tells us most of the drug should have been delivered only to the left side of this tumor. And this image acquired after the fact tells us that indeed we are right. So for the first time in history, we may also have a way of telling the clinician during drug delivery where and when the drug has been successfully delivered. And so we are just about to initiate here, as part of this biomedical research center in collaboration with the NHS, the first ever clinical trial of targeted ultrasound-enhanced drug delivery in collaboration with an industrial partner called Celsium. Please watch this space. I hope when you come back next year or the year after, we'll be able to report on some fantastic patient success stories. And in finishing, I'd like to leave you with one of my favorite um, 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 uh, summaries and quotes. I personally think that surgeons will be made redundant in the next, um, um, uh, in, in the next century. Surgery will, 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 will be eliminated because you cannot treat a systemic disease such as cancer with a local intervention. I think what will happen is we'll start using encapsulated, potent, cancer cell-specific drugs which are injected systemically. We'll then be using devices such as ultrasound to image the target sites, release those drugs, and map the drug release in real time. And it is only in a very small subset of situations that we will invite surgeons back in to help with pain palliation of specific um, um, cases. But what is limiting this fantastic vision? Well, one of my favorite quotes from an actor sadly no longer with us is this. <laughs> we are faced with increased costs of development of therapy, we're faced with a differing pyramid in the population, with an increasing elderly percentage of the population. Research is no longer fully funded by government, it is now sponsored by government, which means a partial contribution to the overall bill of developing those therapies. How do we therefore make the balance? How do we put a price on a human life as researchers and say, okay, maybe in 30 or 40 years I can treat everything and everyone. I can replace every organ in this room. At which point is it appropriate to stop? And on that note, thank you very much. Thank you, Vice-Chancellor. Constantine, thank you very much indeed. Our third and final speaker of the morning is Professor Alison Noble. Alison is the Professor of Biomedical Engineering and Director of the Biomedical Image Analysis Laboratory here in Oxford. She's a Fellow of St. Hilda's and of Wolfson. And she is also a product of Oxford's education. She received her DPhil here in 1989, and Alison became a professor of engineering science in 2002. She's had a meteoric career. She was the youngest uh, professor to be elected in engineering at that time. Alison has created a world-class, world-renowned laboratory focused, as we will hear in a few moments, on imaging strategies for being able to identify and see disease in living patients. 
All three of our speakers today not only are world-class researchers, but also participate very much on the educational side of Oxford. Alison particularly is a leader in that area, and she has taught many engineering courses, but most importantly is the leader of our doctoral training program here in biomedical engineering in Oxford. So it's a pleasure to welcome Alison to the podium. Alison. Very much Vice Chancellor. So my area of expertise is in imaging and particularly on the aspect which is um, information engineering and that's how you take images and turn that into clinical, useful clinical information. To place where we are today and where we're going in perspective, um, if you think about in the last century medical imaging was very much driven by physics, the advances in physics which generated the images. Images were initially thought of for medical imaging as ways to um, look inside the body rather than have to um, do surgery. And here are some really early examples in these major areas of X-ray, ultrasound and MRI, which you're all very familiar with, with today. Um, early pictures shown at the top and um, early examples, particularly the MRI one's pretty scary. We are very glad that the physics and engineering advances have advanced from that particular piece of equipment today. Um, but I, I say the most important thing that images provide is information. Then you, you don't, you're not trying to generate medical images to make the body look pretty. It's not cosmetic. It's all about providing diagnostic information. And even in the last, last decade or so, there's been, there, the uh, improvements in, in that aspect are quite pronounced. When I first started working in Oxford in 1995, in the area of ultrasound images, the type of data that I used is, is illustrated here. It was almost binary data. This is an example of the left ventricle of the heart, the apex of the heart at the top. And you can see some of our early work as we go to track the boundaries of the heart shown here. Very, very low quality data. In fact, a lot of it was digitized. There's a quite transformation both for my area, I'm interested a lot in ultrasound, in moving that sort of technology to three-dimensional imaging. Most um, work in certainly research is now in 3D. And now in real time, in most of the imaging modalities, you can now get real-time information. And although it hasn't projected particularly well on this projector, there's an example here, slicing through 3D imaging. But this is really where, as we know in our own worlds, that we are very much in a digital era. era and my interest is in how that um, we are now treating images as digital information and providing the clinicians with the information they want to make decision making. So imaging today, well we have beautiful images. These are examples from, um, of a brain scan. You can see incredible detail inside. This is from what's called the seven Tesla image, which is the, uh, the higher the Tesla, the higher the spatial resolution. So we can get beautiful images from imaging and we can also look at beautiful um, small people as well. Um, ultra, uh, uh, um, 3D ultrasound is, is now, of course, very widely used, um, both for um, it, looking at um, for, um, screening in, in, in pregnancy. Um, so we have the tools, we have the, the images. So what are the big changes that are going on today? Um, and I'm going to highlight three of these um, um, areas in, in particular where, where, where we've been working. What's transforming medicine is now we've moved away from those single types of images, the ultrasound, MRI, 
um, an X-ray, um, also uh, other variants in these, um, of um, magnetic resonance imaging, to now having what we call multimodality imaging. So clinicians today, and it's illustrated here, in, um, examples from both cardiology and in, in brain imaging, you've now got such a choice of the ways to look inside the brain and many ways to look at the heart. Not, not just at anatomy, not just at ways of looking at the function of an individual organ, but starting to get increasingly down to the cellular level. So we have now rich ways to be able to explore the body. Um, so that sounds all very well, but uh, the clinicians at the end have to decide which of these information is the, is the useful. How do you combine these different types of information? They can do that by mental fusion, um, and that, of course, would be traditionally how you might do it. But how, how engineers are contributing is to try and automate that task. Here's an illustration from some of our own work where we've taken a magnetic um, resonance image of, of um, the heart and also an ultrasound image. And we've, we've, these were acquired at separate times. And we have technology that allows you to align these data sets together and present the combined information. Why you might do that is, is what's illustrated here. The gray on the back, which you can see inside here, is the magnetic resonance imaging. The green you can see here is, are the valves on the heart, and you've got the four chambers coming in here. Why this is important is that often fusing the information, combining it, tells you more about health um, than looking at, at um, a, a single modality. There's also, and it's been hinted at by the other talks, we're looking for cost-effective solutions. Here, if magnetic resonance imaging is very expensive to do in a hospital, it takes a lot of time. Ultrasound is, is the cheapest of the modalities. So if you can acquire an MRI at the beginning and then follow a patient through with ultrasound, that's a must, um, without losing um, important clinical information, that's clearly an um, advantage from a cost-effective point of view. Another example here, the same idea of trying to improve the quality of the information presented is what I sometimes call the high-definition ultrasound. Take multiple ultras ultrasounds of the same scan, then through the, um, the software solution behind, be able to reconstruct a more complete um, representation of the heart. Um, that, and this is more useful for diagnosis than any of the individual scans here. Second, big there's a continued need to be able to provide new types of, Im of Im imaging modality or variants of it that provide you with information that can help in de decision making, both in diagnosis and increasingly of interest, and this links very nicely with Constantine's um, presentation, in therapy. Traditionally, imaging has been used for diagnostic tasks. And one, one particular piece of work we've looked at um, is within the area of breast cancer is traditionally you would use imaging. You would, this is a conventional ultrasound we call B-mode. You use that to size and shape, of, um, look at the size and shape of a breast cancer. And you can then introduce on top of that information about the stiffness of the cancer as well as how much it moves around, each of those additional indicators provides an, an increase in information that can improve the decision making. And we've worked with the breast cancer um, unit on this idea and by, it turns out um, that, that by, um, I'm not sure how clearly, clearly you can see it from that example, we can then use, this is the breast cancer shown here, this is looking at elasticity, saying a cancer is stiff and showing that this particular example does not move around. By using those complementary bits of information, we, what, what we've shown in, 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 a, in a study is that you can, um, can recognise more benign 
um, masses than you would be using with the conventional ultrasound to get um, today. Why that's important is that 80% of biopsies are unnecessary, and that's because from this single ultrasound, they cannot distinguish between an object here and the object here, which by eye to you might be difficult to interpret. Um, here, from the ultrasound alone, these look similar. If in doubt, the radiologist will take the biopsy. If you then, the idea is that you add the information shown here about the stiffness. In this case, these are both stiff. But then you come on and look at whether the object slips. In this particular case, it slips. In this one, it, it does not. This particular type of mass turns out to be a fibroadenoma, which is benign. In this case, it's a cancer. Another change that's happening is that my area of interest is image processing. We're trying to take image processing out of the, the um, um, loop, which might sound like I'm trying to lose my job, but it's all about making things um, clinically efficient. And how we're doing that is by using machine learning techniques. Um, and the idea here is that rather than acquire data, do some image analysis, which is manipulate manually, maybe extract features, um, recognize an object, and then make some inference and decision, we're trying to let the machine learning from large databases of data combine all this into one big box. And so the clinician uh, needs to just focus on acquiring data and then interpreting the results. We work, we've been working with Philips on a, a, a simple version of this idea, which is acquire three-dimensional ultrasound data. And the goal is to be able to present key diagnostic um, planes in the fetal head. Um, this allows you to um, look at the development of the fetal brain. Normally you would do this by taking, um, acquiring data and then taking some time to navigate a quite complicated three-dimensional object. What work we're working towards is the same acquisition, then have ways of then acquiring, having acquired the data, use machine learning to recognize the best plane, and so you just present the best plane. So this time-consuming task that's indicated here is now reduced down by computer to a very small um, amount of time. And clearly that means the total time required to make a decision is a lot quicker. And there's a lot of, um, lot of interest in being able to um, clearly use techniques of that kind in other areas of medicine. Another, a, a, a second example here shown in microscopy is that a lot of people in microscopy just want to count cells. It's very tedious to do. What you could do is you could acquire data, identify each cell, and then cluster, within a cluster, then count the number of cells. That turns out to be an incredibly hard image analysis task. So we've developed a solution that uses machine learning techniques that rather than count the individual um, cells, learns to recognize the pattern of, of, um, it within the image that's associated with a certain count. So the user is presented directly with the count, which is the measure that they want, rather than have to do that. Um, as part of the pipeline of first recognizing cells and then counting them. The fourth area that's a, a, a massive area that's changing, which links in with Larnell's um, work as well, is using imaging as an affordable technology solutions. Now, we generally think in the Western world of, of wanting quality solutions. When we look at countries um, such as India and China, they need much cheaper versions of, of imaging. So the technology drivers in this area are quite different from the ones I've been brought up to, to work to as engineering constraints. They are, ve they are very much portability and affordability. They're not quality of image. 
And in fact, a lot of the questions you're trying to ask in healthcare practices are very different than those that we would, we would ask, ask in our own country. And in ultrasound, what that particularly the interesting change at the moment is, is you can attach ultrasound probes to mobile phones and also to laptops. These are significantly cheaper. You're essentially now attaching the sensor. This particular one is, is say, more of the order of um, three to four thousand pounds versus an, an ultrasound machine could be seventy-five thousand pounds. This particular one was in the news um, this week, in fact, um, where um, research at the University of Newcastle. Um, claim that they have a probe that can cost £40. Now, this all sounds very exciting. It means there's great opportunities to start to think about delivery of imaging, particularly ultrasound images in, in the, is the um, obvious um, imaging um, to move into that area, but we have the problem I mentioned at the beginning. I'd say we've moved in, 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 in Western world, we've moved from lower quality data to higher quality data, the type of information that provided by these probes can be a lot lower. So we have two solutions. We wait until the quality improves, and then we can think about, and think about bringing down the cost and only think about delivering solutions. Or we can think about combining imaging with the analysis, analysis tools and develop more intelligent analysis tools that can work with the best quality of data. And that's what we're trying to do. So my, um, just to close then, I've touched on um, four important areas of imaging at the moment. The use of multimodality imaging, improving, improving the use of that. The continued um, need to have images provide new information that can be used in both diagnosis and therapy. We need the practical need is the fact that we need to Im improve what I, I've called the image pipeline. And also there's this very exciting area of affordable imaging technology. And then there's a fifth one I haven't touched on because we don't know how to solve, and which is the final one. We now are swamped with medical images um, in the hospitals, in the NHS, around the world. We need better ways. We now have a wonderful, rich information source. We need better ways to data mine to answer questions like, this, this patient has a similar case history based on the imaging evidence. That, um, that other patients do suggest better, better um, treatment and to work to um, better evidence-based medicine using imaging. And then just to sum up, I think all our present presentations, and it links very much with how the Vice-Chancellor started, the bottom line is we, very are, we are very much, um, there's a current wave of new healthcare technologies developed. They are being made by a combination of, of academia working with clinicians and industry. It's very much multidisciplinary and it's led by the new generation of biomedical engineers. Thank you very much. <laughs>